Brothers, sisters, let's take our Bibles and turn to the letter to the Hebrews. And from this letter, I'd like to read a selection from chapter 10, 11, and 12. I'm doing this in relation to our confession as found in Lord's Day 7. That's a confession about what is faith. So we begin in Hebrews 10 at verse 32. But to recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated before you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the people of old received their commendation. And the passage continues telling us of various of the people of old who did this or that by faith. But I'd like to read the one, the statement relating to Moses. That picks that, that's in verse 24, chapter 11, verse 24 through 20. Seven, by faith Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And again, I will skip what's further recorded about the people and entering the promised land and pick up at 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive it was promised since God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So far, brothers and sisters, the reading from God's holy word, it is because of passages as this, and of course there are more, that the church has summarized the word of God as we have in Lord's Day 7 in relation to faith. Lord's Day 7, you find printed on page 875 of your Psalter. And here we repeat after God what the Lord has revealed to us. Question 20, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? And the answer, no. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Which raises the question, what is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge, for which I hold as true all that God's revealed to us in his word, it's also a wholehearted trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? Well, that's promised us in the gospel. The summary which is taught us in the articles that were Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? And there follows the Apostles' Creed, as we have just confessed it some moments ago. The Lord's Day we just read together, and the chapter we just read together revolves around the topic of faith. And it would seem to me, brothers and sisters, that if there is any topic in Scripture or in the Confessions that should be crystal clear to us, straightforward to us, it's got to be the topic of faith. After all, we confess in question and answer 20 of our Lord's Day that you have to have faith to be saved. Well, this is the church of Jesus Christ Isn't this the assembly of those who are saved? Meaning, we have faith. Yes? So we should know very well what faith is. Okay. So tell me this then, congregation. What do you think? Is faith a thing you have? Or is it something you do? Is faith something of the head or of the heart? What do you think? And can you describe for me what your faith looks like in daily life? 
Could you? We say we're people of faith, and yet somehow there is something slippery about this thing called faith. I summarize the sermon this afternoon with this theme, true faith looks steadfastly at Jesus Christ alone in all life's challenges. In unpacking that theme, I ask your attention for three points. The first is, what is true faith? Then what does faith look like in practice? And in third place, what does this mean for us? So the first question, what is true faith? Perhaps the closest place in Scripture where the Lord describes for us what faith is, is the passage we read, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Our translation has there, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I suspect that many of us are familiar with an older translation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What I want to do this afternoon is zero in on that description of faith. To do that, I'm going to have to show you first the setting in which the apostle writes this. For this description of faith, or definition, what do you want to call it, is not given in a dry catechism class. So here's some doctrine for you to think about. But is given in the dirt and mud of real life. That's why I had us read a portion from chapter 10. Chapter 10 tells us that when the Hebrews first came to faith, when they first got to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they did so with much joy, including embracing the consequences of becoming Christians. And what were the consequences that he lists? Verse 32, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So what are you to think of? What these Christians have done, or these Hebrews who became Christians, they've had to tell their family, I follow Jesus Christ. And the cost could very well be rejection. Suffering. They had to tell the boss, I'm a Christian. That's got consequences for my lifestyle. The result, ridicule. As a matter of fact, verse 33 gives us some of the color here. You were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you became partners with those so treated. Ridicule. Laughed at. Sidelined. Silenced. Canceled. These were the consequences that these readers experienced themselves and in their circle of friends. 
So they had to support friends sidelined, ridiculed. 34, you had compassion on those in prison. Some of you, because you came to faith, says the apostle, were imprisoned. And you took that. You had compassion on brothers and sisters in prison for the faith. In fact, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Your house was burned down. Your crops were raided. Your animals stolen. Because you'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, the apostle says, this is the stuff that happened to you. And then he adds, you joyfully accepted that. Why? Why do they accept it? End of verse 34, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, what these young Christians were thinking was, it's okay to let goods and kindred go because we've got riches down the pipe that we don't have today, but we do know that what's coming down the pipe is better than we have today. As a matter of fact, losing this is quite okay because what we're getting is so much better. Problem was that as the months and the years went by, these Hebrew Christians lost the shutzpah to keep going in the face. Verse 35, the apostle says, don't throw away your confidence. Verse 36, you have need of endurance. They're getting tired of being sidelined, being insulted, having their crops burned again. And they're getting spiritual flat tires. And so the apostle says, you have need of endurance, so how am I going to pump up your tires? And he does that by quoting a passage from Habakkuk 2 about what's coming. Get a little while and the coming one will come and won't delay. But today, my righteous one shall live by faith. That's, the apostle says, how you need to endure today. Live by faith. Well, now, there's the tricky question. So what's faith? You see, what the apostle says, and he describes faith in 11 verse 1, is not dry doctrine, but it's answering the very real challenge that his readers are facing. How do you pump their flat tires? And the answer is, let me tell you what faith is. What it really is in the hurt and pain of real life. So there's your background to chapter 11, 1. What is faith? Substance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, or as our translation as the assurance of things hoped for. And you'll notice that, that particular definition has got two parallel sentences. The one is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. So, assurance and conviction are parallel or substance in the old translation. And the other part is things hoped for and things not seen. And the two help to define each other. Fine. That first part, the assurance or the substance or the conviction, yeah, that's a hard one to get our handle on. So let me go to the other phrase first, things hoped for, things unseen. 
What's the, where is that meant to send our thoughts? To go back for a second to chapter 10, why did the Hebrews joyfully accept the plundering of their property? And you'll recall, it's because they were looking to the better possession that God had promised. Now, there is your things hoped for. There's your things unseen. Things hoped for. We use the word hope in our modern English to describe a a maybe-maybe thing, a hope tomorrow the weather's going to be nice. But in the Bible, the word hope is a certainty. It's the conviction that what's promised is going to happen. And so these early Hebrew Christians, they hoped for, they were certain of the reward. That's the things unseen today. You're not seeing it yet, but you're confident 110%, that's coming. The unseen, hoped for. To color that in just a little bit, you're on a long hike up some hill, mountain, and you're tired, your muscles are sore, and you sit down for a break. What gets you going again is the things hoped for. What's unseen when you're sitting on that rock two-thirds of the way up the hill, you're not seeing the view from the top. But in the eye of your mind, you are seeing it. And you're confident, by the time I get to the top, I'm going to be seeing this this lovely vista. There's your things hoped for, yet unseen. But what are you doing now By seeing it in the eye of your mind, you are making the the future view already real to yourself. So that that unseen view gains substance in your mind. Might I say, you are substanceizing it, making it substantial in your mind. You're seeing it before you see it with the eyes of your body. And that gets you back on your feet and up the hill because you want to see the real thing. Now that's what the apostle's getting at when he says, what is faith? It is the substance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. In the eye of your mind, you are seeing what's ahead. And you're confident that what you're seeing in the eye of your mind, you're going to be seeing momentarily with the eye of your body. And it's not just the view from the top of the hill, but it's the blessings that God's prepared for you in Jesus Christ. It is the inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you today. That's the things hoped for, today unseen, but in the eye of your mind, you're seeing it, substantiating, substantializing it. 
And I trust, brothers and sisters, we realize that just as seeing in the eye of your mind the view from the top of the hill gets you off your rock, back on your feet and climbing onward, so too seeing with the eye of your mind the glorious promises that God has prepared for you in Jesus Christ has an impact. It gets you going. It pumps up your flat tires, refuels your tank, and gets you moving all the way to the top of the hill. Well, the new Jerusalem. And now the apostle says, and that is faith. Faith is making substantial in your head or your heart, take your pick, what your eyes do not yet see. Making real what God has promised, has prepared for you in Jesus Christ. Faith is the substance or assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that answers our first question. What is faith? But we're needing congregation to go farther. What does this actually look like in practice? That's our second point. Now what the apostle has done, he says to his readers, let me draw your attention to so many of the saints of the Old Testament. How they substanceized what they saw, the promises of God, real in their minds, what they did with that. Like I indicated, I'll lift out one example, and that's Moses. What did he do? We read it. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I suspect that we all know exactly what Moses' situation was. Though he was born of the Jews. He was adopted into Pharaoh's family, became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Which is to say that as he was growing up, he was keenly aware of all the pleasures and the treasures of the palace and of what Egypt had to offer. He lived a high life, palace life, with all the freedoms that came to that in terms of pleasure, in terms of music, in terms of wine, in terms of women, you fill in the blank. It was all there for him, not to forget power, we might say. That's what's meant here by the pleasures of sin. But what did Moses do? Under the blessing of God, he remembered his upbringing as a child. What his mother, Jochebed, had taught him before he had to move to Pharaoh's palace. 
And she had taught him that there is far more to reality than the naked eye can see. There's glorious promises. There is an inheritance that the Lord, your God, Moses, has prepared for you. And so when Moses is looking out the palace window there, he's seeing not just the luxury that belongs to being a prince, his luxury at his fingertips. He's looking a bit farther, and he's seeing the slaves being abused by the Egyptians. And as he looks beyond the slaves, over the horizons of time and space, he's seeing in the eye of his mind the promised land, the land of Canaan, which God has promised to those slaves. And as he's looking farther... He's recognizing that this promised land of Canaan is in turn symbolic of the new Jerusalem, of paradise restored, of all the goodness, the blessings that God's prepared for his people in the coming Savior. He's seeing in the eyes of his mind that in the presence of God is ultimate joy. Psalm 16. A joy far richer, far more rewarding than what he's seeing in the palace of Pharaoh. So what's he do? He's seeing, with the eye of his mind, the unseen, the promised land, presence of God because of the coming Savior, paradise restored. He's seeing the unseen. He's convinced that what God has promised will come about. And so he gets up and leaves the palace. He lets goods and kindred go. His mother, I mean the princess, his brothers and sisters, I mean the other princes and princesses in the palace, the opportunities, the freedoms, he lets it all go because he loves Jesus Christ more than all of that. He's seeing the unseen, factoring the promises of the unseen, the things hoped for, into his decision-making processes, and so decides to leave the palace. You see what's happening in his head? His calculations are not determined only by what he's seeing with the eye of the body. His decisions are not based strictly on what he's experiencing. Luxury versus abuse. What's happening up here is that he's taking real the promises of God. Those promises have substance. That's reality to his thinking. So much reality that he'll leave the goods of this life with its pleasures, 
in favor of what he doesn't see. You see, my brothers, my sisters, that is faith. Living by faith. He's making decisions. He's factoring into his decision-making process so much more than the eye sees. He's factoring in the promises of God. Costly, though factoring it in might be. And I can say the same in relation to verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. Him who is invisible? God. Christ. He who gives to him the promised inheritance. That's so much bigger in his thinking than the anger of the king. Anger of the king? Well, yeah, Moses had killed somebody. And so Pharaoh's agents are everywhere to find him. So why doesn't he just crawl away into some corner and shrivel up and perish? I mean, he's afraid of the anger of the king, no? Faith has its eye on Jesus Christ. He's my everything. He's my joy. He's my safety. And so Moses includes those facts as God's revealed them into his decision-making processes and he gets out of his hiding place and he flees the land. So the question's again, do you see, my brothers and sisters, what's happening in his head? What faith is? Now, I trust it's clear that faith isn't a thing that I can sit here and say, look, I, I, I got faith. It's right there. And I trust it's clear, too, that faith isn't simply, um, yeah, of course I've got faith. I mean, I come to church. My being in church shows that I have faith. And I trust you understand that even, even reciting the Apostles' Creed together, that's not true faith. I mean, it's good to do, don't get me wrong, as it's good to be in church. Absolutely, it's what the Lord wants of us. This is where we would strengthen our faith. But what is faith? It's action. It's decision-making on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Decision-making that factors the promises of the Lord in Jesus Christ into the process. It's decision-making with your eye over the hill and around the corner to see what you can't see. The New Jerusalem. The presence of God. The fullness of joy. Obtained for us in Jesus Christ. You see, that's Lord's Day 7. <clears throat> What's true faith? It's not only a sure knowledge. It is that. It's, 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 it's knowledge. It's a sure knowledge. I know it's true. Yeah. It's also a whole heart to trust. It's this confidence that these promises of God, they're for me. Uh-huh. But you can't, my brothers, my sisters, you cannot have trust in the accuracy, the validity of the promises of God 
while not factoring them into your decision-making processes. Does that make sense? Trust, the confidence that characterizes faith, has got legs and feet. I'm confident that all God's promises are true for me. I've got this inheritance in heaven set aside there for me. And so I'm going to factor that in. I'm going to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life will sow. The body they may kill. It's all fine. I have God. His promises in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes me do today what I do. Faith is an action. It's a verb. So that's our second point. What's it look like in practice? We're making decisions as Moses did. And leaving aside all the treasures of this life because we want to do what the Lord wants of us. Now we're third. So what's this mean for us? An awful lot more than putting the kids in the car on Sunday and coming to church. An awful lot more than sending the kids to a Christian school into catechism class. An awful lot more than reading the Bible at the kitchen table and talking about the Bible. Oh, these are all essential. Please, don't misunderstand me. But faith is so much more. Action. Decisions. By faith, Noah built an ark, though he'd never seen rain before and had no clue what a flood was, but God spoke, and so he said, yes, Lord. By faith, Abram left the land of his fathers to go to a strange place. Would you do that? He didn't know where he was going. But he factored God's promises in. That was enough for him. And we say, you know what? That's all fine for the heroes of Hebrews 11. But we ain't no heroes. We're today's people. In today's challenges. Do what the people of verse 32 and following did. Stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. It's not me. I feel so weak. Yeah. I dare say we all connect to the people of chapter 10. Spiritual flat tires in today's North America. And so I want to draw your attention to what the apostle does next. Chapter 12. He's telling these discouraged Christians that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people of chapter 11. But what, my brothers, my sisters, are they witnesses of? We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, they're witnesses of, of, of the reward that they've seen in the eye of their mind. And so they've let the stuff of this life go because it's the reward we want. Verse 
Him who's invisible, Jesus Christ. But to my brothers, my sisters, where is Jesus Christ? Look at what it says. Verse 2. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see him there in the eye of your mind? What does he look like? And the Bible elsewhere describes him as a lamb slain. And in the eye of your mind, you see the scars of his hand and his feet. He's been crucified. He's been killed to atone for your sins and mine, including the weaknesses of our faith and our failures repeatedly to make decisions that include the promises of the gospel. Faith. But he's there. Who is he? And the apostle says, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Underline the word perfecter, please. Our faith, so weak, so broken, so finite. Jesus' faith on the cross Every decision he made on the cross included factoring in, how does the apostle put it? The joy that was set before him. On the cross, Jesus looked into the unseen, what was hoped for, the promises of God to receive him into eternal glory, to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's because he looked beyond the pain of the now into the joy that was coming that he could atone for your sins and mine, including the weaknesses of our faith. And so what's for you and I to do? To be strong in faith? Oh, sure, sure. To hinge everything on the strength of our faith, on how we factor in God's promises into our daily decisions? Oh, we fail. How we fail. Keep your eye on Jesus Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. His faith, his decisions, his obedience is written to your account. Do you need strong faith to be saved? I thank God, no. Jesus was strong in faith and perfects my weak faith. Do I need perfect faith to be saved? I thank God, no, I don't. Jesus did. I do need true faith. And what is that? It's real. In the eye of my mind, what Christ has accomplished, what God has promised, that inheritance kept in heaven for me, unfading, imperishable. But it's real. That's where I'm going. 
I see it already in the eye of my mind. And so, I'll let goods and kindred go. It's all okay. My eye is fixed steadfastly on Jesus Christ. And he will bring me to the top of the hill. And then I'll see with my physical eyes what I today only see with the eye of my mind in Jesus Christ. He's faithful. He'll bring me there. I can't wait. Meanwhile, I'll get off my rock and keep on going to the end. Do you have true faith? Is your eye fixed on Jesus Christ as you make your decisions this evening, tomorrow, Tuesday? Only you can answer that question in relation to yourself. God grant us grace to wrestle honestly with that essential question.